Thank you, snowboarding. Thank you, snowboarding. Thank you, snowboarding. Snowboarding. Hey friends, welcome back to Thank You Snowboarding, the podcast that is delving into UK snowboard culture, past and present. And it's made in association with the Snowboard Asylum, keeping British snowboarders with the kit they need for many, many years. So I hope you had a nice Christmas wherever you were in the world and however that presented itself. Um, We had a very mellow one, which was delightful. Really mellow, kids on good form, plenty of Lego, you know the score. So yeah, this week's guest um, sat down, not sat down, sat on a Zoom call with Eddie Spearing a couple of weeks ago. Um, Out of everyone I think I wanted to get on the podcast, Eddie is definitely one of the key components, I would say, of the UK scene from its very roots to where it is now. Um, Eddie played a huge part setting up Snowboard UK as we talk about we talk about the magazine side of snowboarding quite a lot a scene that supported three, four magazines depending on how you look at it at one point there was definitely some business and life to be had out of that and Eddie I would say straddled the sort of publication world He was also the backbone of the BSA. He was just, he was always, he was at every comp you went to. He was always judging. He was always organising something. Um, Always in good humour, or (laughs) mostly in good humour, I would say. Um, He was just basically everywhere. Every party, everything, every event. And with humour and the humour ran through the magazines and I think that influenced White Lines when that started as well. We talk about that. And just, I just don't think we can really cover how much of an influence Eddie had on the UK scene. Um, he really was one of the linchpins. There's only like a very small handful of people that I could say actually put their whole lives into snowboarding and Eddie is definitely one of them. So I caught up with him via Zoom because he's now in New Zealand. I spoke to him, I was, it was in the evening over here and it was 8am over there on a Monday morning. And um, we could have talked for hours, obviously we had to sort of try and stay on some sort of track. And uh, maybe we'll go for a repeat episode if and when the time allows because there was a lot of stuff we didn't cover. But hopefully you'll find this interesting. We cover a lot of stuff about magazines, the BSA, early snowboarding days, what he thinks now about competition and all the good stuff. So please do spare me about an hour and a half with me and Eddie Spearing. I'll see you at the end for housekeeping. Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say out of like everyone on my list, there's a few real key, like a few real... There's only a handful of people who kind of were really pivotal and you're one of them. Mm. Do you, when you look back, do you kind of see that or do you just think, well, I was just, I was just doing it. I didn't really think about it. Oh no, I knew, I knew that time, but it it was, it's funny how it worked out though. You know, it wasn't like, there's nothing's, nothing's ever planned. You know, it's, it's all (laughs) random and you just find yourself in the right place at the right time. Yeah. 
like um so, um so i'll tell you how i got into snowboarding yeah let's go there let's go there so yeah, what did it uh, look like i mean what i mean that was early wasn't it so it can't have been very main it certainly wasn't sort of in the shops or in magazine you know there certainly wasn't any magazines or anything was it no not no there wasn't um i was at the british downhill skate championships at brown's hatch yep and um i was walking back up the hill and i ended up walking up beside dave Ferno, right uh, from, from ss20 and um ss20 didn't exist at that time but it was just about to yeah and um we were just walking up the hill, you know, talking away, never met each other before. Um, I just finished um, Polytechnic. It's going to be working for GEC steam turbine generators in rugby as a commissioning engineer. Wow. And uh, he's, I, well, he, he said, where do you live? I said, oh, I'm going to be living in rugby. Yeah. Went, oh, I live in rugby. I went, oh, yeah. And he said, where are you living? I said, oh, I've got nowhere to live. Oh, you can come and live with me. <laughs> no way. So, so I moved in with Dave Ferno. Like yeah. that, about two weeks later, I, I went around to see him. Moved, um, set it all up. Moved in with Dave Ferno, and there, all through his garage, there's a whole load of snowboards, like Sims and old K two gyrators and, oh, and stuff like that. And I'd never seen a snowboard. Um, first time I'd seen a snowboard was on a trip to Germany with the polytechnic in 1980 probably in 85 or 84 and i saw some we went um skiing it was just at the end of the season and i saw some snowboarders going down I went, oh my god why am i on skis couldn't ski yeah and we were just mucking around and there were some snowboarders first time i saw snowboarding and then um there I was now in Dave Furnow's house, you know, and um, there's some snowboards. And how come that, he had all those boards? Like, what was what was going on there? Uh, well, I think he just saw it and got into it himself. You know, he just him like he was part of um, a pretty hardcore like skate crew. Um, Ian Cocking, yeah, um, he, he knew. All right, so well, of course, Ian Cocking. Um, if you if you look, he's He'd been making snowboards himself, but there's this group who just got into snowboarding in about 1985, 1984, just because they heard about it and seen it and made their own boards and got on with it. Incredible. Um, Jeff Parr would be another one. You, you need to interview Jeff Parr. Right. And so, um, yeah, so with Dave at his house, we then – he then taught me the snowboard. We went up to uh, the the Birmingham dry slope. What's it called? Acker's Trust. Acker's, yeah. Acker's Trust. And then there's the whole Birmingham contingent or part of it. Was Acker's quite yeah. opening open to you guys snowboarding then? Oh, yeah. 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 It, it was, that was the center of operations right. for the whole of the Midlands, the dry yeah. slope at Acker's Trust. Um. And well, we we went skate events, sorry, skate events. Um, some dry slope events started happening. Went along to them. Um, I was then, well, I was fully involved. You know, I was like completely hooked. Yeah, that's this is the thing to do. And <laughs> I, I got um, we, 
the idea was there was already some instruction programs in place well they were they were being built dave was part of that building along with um along with jeff parr um martin drayton you've got to get martin on um and uh, just a few other people um who realized that instruction was important um which it was and was, was I, there and enough like, was there enough need for instruction was there like enough punters wanting to learn because it was well, so it was, new it was so new I, I mean i don't think i ever had any lessons i was it was it was a case of like um put the board on and make your way own way down i don't remember having a lesson as such no. but lots of people did have lessons and and dave and um oh i just forgot his name um what's his name mark from Akers. Oh, you know. right i don't know it'll come back it'll come back to me sorry mark i'll remember um they would see they were doing quite a lot of lessons even back then yeah that's, and that's it became interesting yeah it became evident that there was a dry slope um teaching mechanism required and people were just doing it off their own back and yeah. the bsa the british snowball association had well, it wasn't in existence at that time as it became, but um, it was. There was a teaching mechanism based around the fledgling BSA, and then um, uh, with with Jeremy after a, a snowboard a dry slope competition, um, everyone went back to Dave Furno's house for a meeting to start the BSA, and no one wanted to be president, so in my absence. <laughs> They voted me in. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah. So that was Jeremy's fault. Jeremy's <laughs> fault. Jeremy and Dave and um, who was there? Cocking. Um, actually, I don't know who else was there, but they voted me in. So I became the president of the British Snowboard Association. Grudgingly um, or happily? Oh, I just went, oh, okay. I, I, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. They I, said guess that, there, um, I guess there wasn't really a role to know what to do with. There wasn't, no, no. And uh, someone, um, Mark, uh, uh, Lesprit de Keep, what's oh, his ben name? Yeah, Ben. He said to me, the best people to give a job to are people who are already busy. That's right. So, um, yep. So then I carried on. I've you know, became the president of the BSA, which carried on until I left the country in 2002. That was. So were you working as this turbine engineer commissioning person as well um, at this point? Yeah, I was, but I realized I actually didn't like, um, working in a very large, um, company. Yeah. Like I would go to, um, different steam turbine halls around the country I went up to Hartlepool. I would do um, uh, a two-month stint there, right. and six, you're doing fourteen hours a day, six days a week. Yeah. And the the draw was I was going to be off to all over the world to go and work in South Africa or Canada or wherever there was a GEC steam turbine generating plant need looking after. It was quite yeah. you know it's quite a big role. Yeah. But I realised that all I was going to do was work 16 hours a day, six days a week in a far off distant country in a doing family. what? So I actually resigned from the whole graduate program and left. And, um, 
took another job in High Wycombe right. as an as an R and D research and development engineer in a hosiery company. And, hosiery, um, as hosiery, as in tights and stockings. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I think we might I might just sort of gloss over that. Yeah, we can gloss over. That was <laughs> it was really, really interesting. Really interesting. And it was when I was there that I got fur- much further involved in, in snowboarding because I had time. Well, I had more time. And um that was when I went to the Swansea dry slope event, which was sort of one of the hinge points i think there was a lot happened at that event and i just things went from there then um so when um so when you started the bsa how how aware of you were other sort of scenes happening well well i think we were all aware of we were aware of other scenes um like there was the birmingham scene yeah um there was the South Wales scene with, with Jeff Parr and and, and, and so on. Yeah. Then there was um, like the oh, Dean Stepani um, and his uh, Harrogate, isn't he? Are up there. So the, there was an area around um, Midlands. We had <clears throat> Doug Foden and the Grand Prix crew. That was another area. Then going up to Scotland, there was Mac Snowboard Shop. Well, I was at windsurf shop, and that was another crew. And then on top of all of that, again, there was Aviemore and actually on snow. So everyone yeah. was like, sort of aware of each other bit by bit. Yeah. And um, as people have said it before. Like you, you, it used to be when you when you saw um, someone wearing Vans, oh, they're they're a skater, and you you would sort of know that they were a skateboarder. When you're at um, an airport or somewhere and you saw a snowboard bag, yeah, you go, oh my God, someone's got a snowboard bag. Yeah. And you go running across the airport, you go walking across, and they became friends for life yeah. because they were snowboarding and you were snowboarding in you know, 1988, 1989. It was, you didn't see anyone. So, yeah, you thought you were the only ones alive, but there were more. There were pockets of resistance, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a magical feeling, isn't it? I mean, that was still that was still the case on my first season. You know, I walked into a bar middle of November in Val d'Isere, and there was yeah. a guy with an SS twenty T shirt on, and that was where I bought my board from. And it's like, right, I need to know him. Like out yeah. of everybody there, it's like that's he's going to be my new mate. Yeah, and he ended up, you know, like through him, it was like you know we ended up staying there for the season because he was one of the early people there setting up chalets and stuff. And then eventually it was like, Oh yeah, we need a couple of people. And it was like, brilliant. And it was because of that single minded, he's a snowboarder. And then, you know, even then 93, 94, you know, snowboarders sticking together. There wasn't, still wasn't that many of, of us. So no, it was quite magical really. Yeah. Right place, right time. It's funny how little, you know, synchronicities happen without you knowing. Like if I didn't hadn't met Dave yeah. or walked up, if I had not, if I'd have been 10 minutes earlier, 10 minutes later, five minutes and not walking up the hill with day, but the British Daniel champs, well, things would have been very different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you probably would have found it via a different oh, yeah. route or maybe not as quickly or something, but I imagine oh, if you were, if you yeah. were skating downhill, you were probably going to be drawn to it at some point. Yeah. Um, 
so that that was the the British Championships, but um, not British Championships, the British Snowboard Association. But before that had happened, you see, um, from going to dry slope events before I was part of the BSA as such, um, at the dry slope events, there was Al and Gus from Acid Snow, and they were making snowboards in Scotland. Yeah, now there's a story to be told there. There is. And um, they were looking for an engineer. And Rob Needham, who you will also have on, he, yeah, he knew up. that I was an engineer. And he's, he said, oh, you need to speak to, to Al and Gus because they need an engineer to design their snowboard press. Right. So I went, oh, okay then. So I got in touch with Al and Gus, and I, I didn't really know who they were. And I did it by phone. And um, they said, yeah, come up to Aviemore. I was living in Taunton, Somerset. <laughs> right, yeah, couldn't one. have been further away. If you'd couldn't have been further away. Right. So I got on the train in basically a, a suit and tie, but not a suit, but I was looking smart. I had my little Sorry. briefcase, yep. my engineer's briefcase. And off I went, <laughs> went up to Aviemore. <laughs> I got off the train. You know, as an engineer, you know, young engineer, yeah, trying to be pro. And um, Alan Gus picked me up, and we just went out and got absolutely fucking wasted. <laughs> <laughs> and, what year was that? When did they start making boards? Well, well, that was probably also eighty-eight or eighty-nine. Eighty-nine it had to be eighty-nine. I, I mean, say. that's crazy that they, you know. They started yeah. making a, making boards in Scotland when you know, like boards weren't that readily available anyway. No, and they had it all worked out. They had you know the the um, the Max Planck. It was the scientist range. The Max Planck, the Boltzmann, the McWeenie, um, all all the board names, and then yeah. all the designs based around the different like freestyle carving um, sort of all terrain they had it all lined up all done and dusted and ready yeah. to go so we were i was i made the press i designed the press had it made um went up there about three times and whilst i was up there one time um steve kane the um editor of skateboard magazine right he was there um he was passing through scotland with his with his missus and he stopped in to do an interview with, with Alan Gus for there was a new supplement in skateboard exclamation mark magazine. It was going to be called the snowboard exclamation mark. Of course. So I, I was, I was there. He turned up, we got chatting as well after we'd finished with Alan Gus and he said, Oh, you're an engineer. We need someone to be the technical editor for the new snowboard magazine. How do you fancy being a technical editor? I went, Oh, yeah, I suppose I could I could be a technical editor of the Snowboard magazine. Why not? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and that's what happened. So I then phoned up lots of distributors, got a load of snowboards. I ran a review in the first issue of Snowboard, exclamation mark. And through working on Snowboard magazine, I then met Stig and Sang Tan and a number of other people. Like Paul Duffy was the photographer. You know, the, the skate photographer, he was, he was amazing. And um, that 
company was owned by Moore and Noble um, Publishing. Now we did three issues of, of Snowboard, and Moore and Noble promptly then it went into liquidation, and we never got paid. All the contributors didn't get paid. We got paid a little bit, but nothing like what we're supposed to. And then the very next day, or three days later, they came back into life as Noble and Moore. <laughs> so they went, they liquidated, didn't pay yeah. anyone, and Phoenix then we Reef Phoenix themselves. So Stig and I, we were really pissed off. Yeah. Like everyone was really annoyed. And they just thought we would just carry on working for them. So Stig and I, we met in um in Bath um over a beer and um decided to start Snowboard UK magazine. Amazing. And and, and that was not that would have been early nineteen ninety one and the issue came out um was it September or October at the end of 1991? We pulled it together in that period. I can tell you. There you go. Oh, I've yeah, got go it on, here. <laughs> When's it saying? Um, it just says 1991 on the on the cover. Yeah. Hasn't got, it, it a, come out. hasn't got a more specific date. Well, I do know uh, we can pin it down because we had to have it ready for the Landudno Dry Slope competition. Yeah. That was the launch moment. And um, that yeah, that's that's when it was. Um, we printed I don't know how many, two thousand, three thousand, really. Uh, got it into the distributor. The, the, when I say distributor, the magazine distributors, because that was hard then. Even trying, if you're launching a new magazine, yeah, you, you have to make it work. You you have to get a distribution deal with one of the magazine distribution companies. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we. We did that, um, but at the same time, we would also physically um, wrap up the magazines, like in blocks of however many, what, ten or twenty. Yeah. And then we used to post them out because it was super expensive. When we realised that we could just drive around the country, yeah, for, for, you know, two tanks of fuel, three tanks of fuel, and hand deliver them to the shops. Brilliant. And in doing that, we also then spoke to all the owners. Um, Found out what was what, what was going on. Get a little bit of information for the, you know, for the, the news section in the mag. Yeah, and um, we 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 did between Stig and I, we like hand built the magazine. You know, Stig was well, Stig was the designer. After the second year, we used um, a design agency in Worcester for the first season of six mags, five mags. Sorry. And that was, um, oh, God, I've just become terrible with names. It's, yeah, Andy Williamson, of course. Andrew you Williamson. Andy? Funky pyjamas yeah. in brackets uh, I've got here. Correct, correct. <laughs> well, well done. So Andy Williamson and his business partner, and um, they were like a young design company in Worcester. They had some real flash offices. It was, it was great. They drove around in, in, um, in Porsches. We loved them. And they would do that. They were, they were great. They, they would do all the design. Yeah. Like back then, like putting a magazine together, it's not like now where it's all on screen. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, you can see it. Yeah. yeah. No, back then, you, you designed it in a, on a rubbish Mac, um, saved all the files to either you know, floppy disks or to those um, three and a half megabyte um, large floppy disks. Yeah. Took this stack of disks round to your designer. Um, 
because you oh, you separately have all the photographs um, scanned by a scanning company yeah. on a disc on a, a drum scanner. All the text would be written in on it was our like, we wrote all the text on two computers, one of which was an old IBM. It was massive, like it was, honestly, it was massive, <laughs> and it was our accounts computer, and we had a dot matrix printer. So we wrote all the all the all the the articles. Stig photographed. I wrote. He wrote. We would then take this material to um, Tableau Design, as they were called. They would put it together. They would output all the finished InDesign files. We would then physically pick those up in on discs, take them to the Repro House. Yeah. They would then convert all those InDesign files to film. And then film was like the four colors of films, cyan, CMYK, cyan, magento, yellow, and black. They would then turn it into film, laid out in blocks of eight or 16. They would finish that. We would physically drive to the repro house, pick up the film, drive it to the printer. This is all in the Midlands. drop Drop the film off, say goodbye, come back a week later, and there's our magazines and then we would physically pick up the magazines and drive around the country and that's what we did there's so there's so many things to get into there so one of the things is i think that there's something in that driving the magazines around and visiting people that helped create a community of people like i i believe the uk scene is sort of slightly different to everywhere else and i think it's doing things like that you know you knew the people because you were seeing them and meeting them and talking to them that helped create this cohesive scene do you think that's there's something in that yeah definitely definitely part of it and and because like it's almost like um trying to find the shops was hard to start with but then when you delivered the magazines, it sort of solidified that we were in the right shop. We're talking to the right people, maybe skate shops, surf shops, all different shops, but they're all had the same outlook on that. Snowboarding was, yeah, was good. And off the back of that, of course, we were, um, selling advertising. So I did the advertising sales. Yeah. So I was also talking to them about adverts. Um, so yeah, that, that that's absolutely the, the truth of it um and i also think we were probably like stig and i we we were probably two years probably two years too soon you know it was we we both had jobs at the same time it wasn't we didn't it wasn't our full-time role no but i was driving up and down i'm still now a, a, a self-employed design engineer in taunton right stig had another job i forgot what it was we used his parents carpet factory an old office um as our office and bit by bit it became more and more full-time to the point that we could fold in our jobs and do it full-time but yeah. we never really earned full-time money it was we we're doing it for the love of it not for yeah well i mean that's another thread isn't it it's like the diy ethos that seems to always run throughout the uk scene you know like chaos the movie was made with you know i imagine practically no budget 
and and he, and I think you know, and people doing seasons with nothing and cramming loads of people on the floor, you know, just to be out there and doing it. And I think you know, and then to sort of you know onto sort of Tim and Gen starting to make movies, and again like you know no budget, but it's like well if we don't do it, no one else is going to do it. And I think yeah. that, I think that feels to be. You know, maybe that's a thing in snowboarding generally, but it certainly feels like that's the case in UK snowboarding. It's like, right, we need to just create this thing ourselves because no one else is going to do it for us. Exactly that. And and that was the same with, with the BSA. It's like it's it's an organisation for snowboarders by snowboarders. That was the, the really the, the whole idea behind it. We, we can't let someone else organise and run our organisation. We created the, the events ourselves we did everything ourselves and yeah that that is but i think i think in i think in turn that gives like everyone involved greater ownership of the thing so it again it reinforces that community you know like everyone everyone goes to the events whether you're riding or not just because it's something that's on where snowboarding's happening so you have to go there's like no question so you you see everybody like everybody's at the comps because that's where the snowboarders are, and that's they—they're your people. Uh, I, yeah, and, and I, I, well, I remember then going on the first time I went to snow. It was about two years after I actually started dry snow snowboarding. I went going up to Scotland was was one thing, but I didn't go to. I went to Europe before I went to Scotland on a just ski camp um, with Dave Fenner, Rob Needham. <clears throat> and um, I, think I think I've seen the advert for that somewhere. Yeah, uh, oh. you have to you have to like phone someone up to pay a deposit. It's just like a di- it's just a different yeah. world, isn't it? It's so crazy. Yeah, and it was Rob Rob's friend Jan Marco. She was the organizer. That's and, right. That name rings a bell. Uh, I mean, I I almost forgotten which bit became first because then we had the BSA trips, which were run by then by Tour Out. Um, which became, you know, little events in their own right. And they were a big deal. Um, oh, the, it, it's easy to, everything becomes blurred into one. You've got to slow down and stop and think. What came first? What came next? Um, how did one thing lead into another? Um, like the, the BSA trips, well, they were run through the magazine, but they were run by the by the BSA. They weren't about the magazine. It was just a case of getting people together in who would go to team uh, more often than not. But what was what was great about it? Well, from my point of view, like so, I first I saw the first issue of Snowboard UK in Charing Cross Station W yeah. Eight Smiths. <laughs> Amazing, and yeah. I think I'd already you know I must have been aware of it or into it somehow, but can't imagine I was doing it because there was just like nowhere for that to happen. But then I remember seeing, picking up the magazine and just thinking, holy shit, this is a thing. Like I'm not imagining this. This is an actual thing. And then with the sort of the BSA trips and things, you'd see the pictures in the magazine. So it was like, well, it was yeah. small enough that if you need, you know, like it showed you where to go. It showed you like, right, there's competitions, just go to them. And everybody's there and trips you can, you and you can go on them. Like it's not an exclusive, it's not an exclusive yeah. club. You can just go along and be part of it. It was amazing. And, and I think we, we really tried hard to make it really open and in, in, inclusive in that way that 
it wasn't like we're the the special people going snowboarding. We tried to make it that everyone should come along yeah. and and grow it like that. At least I, I hope. Well, that's what I felt we tried to do, and I think we did do that. You know, we, there weren't so. any. Huh? I think so. Or from yeah, my they, point they, of view, they, from someone who was outside it looking in, I, I felt very sort of felt very welcomed into it. And then from the magazine's point of view, we 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 also made a point of it not being just images and stories of stuff that wasn't relevant of uh, Americans or Euros. It, we tried to make it as UK focused as we possibly could, and and that meant covering dry slopes and going to Scotland and and covering the uk people that were important yeah not making it not you know not just another snowboarder or a um trans world you know we wanted to do the snowboard the uk snowboard scene yeah and i think i think that really shone through well i think that's a big part of it and also like the humor of it 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 had an englishness about it like i remember reading a contest report and you'd rename terry a harkinson terry heineken (laughs) <laughs> yeah. and it's just like i love the fact it's like right we're gonna do it our way do you know what i mean and it was there was humor all the way through it rather than you know trans world was like fucking snowboarding do you know what i mean whereas england had that sort of it's definitely our take on it now, um stig's stig is very clever he's very funny and um he's very funny with words i think i, I can pretty sure i think stig came up with terry heineken <laughs> Um, <laughs> has anyone ever called Terry A? Eh? Just got up to it. Hey, you're that Terry Heineken guy. <laughs> I don't know. He has a lot. <laughs> but I had my humour where I write. Stiggs had his humour. Between us, we wrote the whole magazine. Yeah. We would we would write third on the magazine you've got there. Yeah. What we, we had good fun. Every every issue is on the um. The bit you were just looking at, what's it called? Not the credits. The the, the um the who, who built the magazine? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. In the very very bottom paragraph, in the small print, we always write some shit in there. We'd always write something funny, so no one ever reads that bit. But we'd always write something in. There might be something weird or some odd angle on our terms and conditions or something. So. There's yeah. always something all the way through. And yeah. every single bit had to be written, you know. We wrote the whole thing. And, and well, it was a labour of love. And, and as, as the magazine progressed, we, we would get to a point where you can try and make it just a little bit better. It's changed its design. Let, or that, that wording isn't quite right. But you had a deadline to hit. Because if you yeah. didn't get them a magazine out the door to the repro house for them to make the film, to get it to the printer and you're going to be late. And often I would just shout, that's it. That's all it's going to get. And then whatever we had done, that would be it. Yeah. And we walk out the door with it, but we, we would often do all nighters. We do 40 hours straight getting the magazine finished. Yeah. We did it often. Just incredible. So just, just, just one more thing on the early days of Snowboard UK. Obviously, I sent you that picture that will go on our Instagram at some point of Adrian in the outfit that he was wearing on the cover shot. Um, I can't believe that. Yeah. 
I know, I know. And the fact that he just lives, he does, you know, he lives 15 minutes from me as well. And, you know, it just, he just called me up and was like, I've got all this stuff. I've got that outfit. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> got to do something with that. But, um, um, I got a question on that. Like that number that's on it, 42. Yeah. Did he put that on or was that his actual number during the race? It looks to me like that was his actual number. It doesn't look like it's been put on afterwards. Because, you know, you can't see that in the, um, in the image uh, on on this cover because no, it's can't, covered up. his legs are up yeah so 42 see the meaning of life and everything and so there it, there it was the beginning of it all and he has the number 42 on his chest and i didn't know that until you sent that picture through the other day serendipity so just for listeners we're talking about the cover of snowboard uk issue one with a guy called adrian corrigal who interesting enough did it was it difficult choosing that first cover that to try and sort of show what snowboarding is because just then the fact he's not grabbing it sort of sticks out in my mind. Yes, yes, we had so much shit about that, and you keep talking about it. And, and um, I, did you see I wrote something on Instagram about that? Did you see that? <laughs> no, I don't think I did see that. What's wrong with Let you? me have a look. So right. I actually explained on Instagram why in. we picked that shot. And the reason why we ended up with that shot is um, Sang took the shot, he took a lot of photos that day. We had another shot of Cy Smith doing a Japan, but it, it was, it was a little bit soft. It wasn't, it, the background wasn't clear. Um, there were other things wrong with that shot, even though he was grabbing that weren't right either. And we went over and over on this photograph, what to pick, but, it's what's going on in the background. That particular day was the first British Championships. So that's yeah. one reason. Um, the day before, it was complete whiteout and, and, and uh, it was a slalom event and you couldn't see your, uh, your hand in front of your face. The very next day, we had another slalom comp and then we went up in the afternoon to run this half-pipe comp, which itself was a ditch pulled together by um, Bob Kinnear at Aviemore he was in charge of Aviemore um, Resort at the time. So we had the, the first half pipe, the first British champs, um, all those little dots in the background, they're all moving up to walk up the, the Cairngorm headwall to drop in on the beautiful powder that was there. On the left, um, yeah. I remember, I remember Jeremy tumbling down, um, get to the bottom and it was just ragdolling down. That was, that was pretty <laughs> funny. But you see... I'm standing on that image. I've got a black bing bag in my hand. Yeah. And I'm just going around picking up rubbish. And right. I'm looking across going, oh, oh, I want to go up there. I, I want to go with them. Yeah. But I couldn't. I had to finish the comp because I had to get that done, to get down to the, the building in Aviemore to do the, the, the prize giving. It was so busy. So that particular shot epitomized um, – Okay, as a UK rider, you had the scenery of Cairngorm, you had the pipe, you had this beautiful light, it was late in the day, and even though it wasn't a grab, which people ripped us about forever, it was still the best shot that we had, epitomising snowboarding in the UK at that point. Yeah. And, and that was basically it. Fair enough. 
Mm. Fair enough. I, I mean, I'm not hating on it at all, you know, because I think it is iconic. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I just wanted to know a bit more of the story behind it because it's like, well, I think there's probably more to that story than than meets the eye. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, yeah. but I also remember seeing it in W. H. Smith's Charing Cross Station in London and just being so pleased that yeah. this was a thing. It wasn't just... I wasn't alone in this. There was Pete. There was other people enough to make a magazine, and that that literally changed my life. So, yeah, I guess, I that guess was thanks the, for that. Well, it was a big decision for Stig and I's part. Once we decided we were going to do it, we then did it, yeah. and um, it was there was it was actually hard to do because it it wasn't the the one that we did. It was the, the five we did the whole season. Yeah, we had to plan the whole, all of them, and I do believe in that one. There's a board test, isn't there? And uh, yeah, that one, that board test from Hintertucks, where everyone's like sleeping outside by the look of things. Yeah, that's right. That's where Rob Rob Morrow was there because um, right. Ian Felton, another person you had to get on, was from from Chaos. He was the distributor for Morrow, so he got Rob Morrow to come along. And now the, the naughty thing is. As we, that was really quite naughty with the first issue of the magazine. We, we wanted a board test, board review, and the Daily Mail Ski Magazine had employed me to do a, a board test for them. Right. So um, we went along on, well, they paid for a lot of that board test, but because <laughs> our magazine came out first, we took it all the same information, yeah. te- changed it around a little bit, and, re- and designed it in our way and put it into our own magazine, which they didn't know we were making. <laughs> so we got Daily Mail Ski Magazine to basically pay for and pull that board test together. Sweet. Well, not, not quite. And then we took the information and put it in our own magazine over two issues. Yeah. And, and, Amazing. Um, um, and, yeah. and also fuck the Daily Mail, right? Because Correct. You can take as much of their money as, as you want. They've got it now. They've got piles of it. Correct, and it was great. We great. Um, the day that Snowboard UK magazine was bigger page-wise than yeah. Daily Mail City. That was a few years down the road, but we ended yeah. up running 184-page issues, yeah. seven, seven issues a year, and we were then officially, no, you couldn't, you know, there was no deliberation, we were thicker and bigger than the Daily Mail Ski Magazine. Amen to that. So that was cool. Yeah, that is cool. How how was it then when sort of when you saw sort of snowboarding? You know, obviously you'd sort of devote a lot of time into it, and then you saw it sort of exploding in the late sort of late nineties. How how did that make you feel with doing the magazine and everything? What what changed? Oh. Did anything change for you? Oh no, it was great. I mean, we had employees. You know, we actually could actually afford to do things. I've been to 72 different resorts around the world, all paid for by different tourist company, tourism boards, you know? Sweet. Um, Seeing it just grow and expand, it's been great. We've been completely part of that. Um, Well, you know, I've I've enjoyed it. (laughs) Where's where's snowboarding taken you? Or what, what, give me an idea of something that happened, either a place that you've been or an incident that's happened where you've just thought sort of that's down to snowboarding where you're just like, fucking hell, like how mad is this? I mean, there's, there's so many, 
Christmas, either going to ISPO, for instance. Right. You know? For the listener, ISPO is a big trade show in Munich, isn't it? Where basically all the yeah. snow sports manufacturers and everything get together to sort of sell to shops. That's right. So going to ISPO every year because you see all the kit for next year. So you're there for snowboarding and it's all paid for on the magazine. And you, you, it's just the party scene. It, it was just like you're right in the thick of it. Yeah. And on the way to ISPO, you stop off in Innsbruck or after to go snowboarding and more parties. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's where the tequila, <laughs> the tequila cool. 1000. We, so we, I didn't even know how we we're going to get to that point. Um, but I think it was, um, I had a wonderful time. I mean, I traveled all over the world, met people who are lifelong friends, did things you'd never do, um, go to countries to go snowboarding and then climb mountains as well off the back of snowboarding. Um, I, I don't know how many things I could give you that were um, moments I've stopped and pinched myself. There, there's, there's so many of them. You know, I've, I've been... I've never made the South America. I've never made Alaska as other people have, as you've talked to, but yeah. I've been everywhere else. I mean, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, just, just thinking about it for me, kind of, you know, as you say, like there's so many things that it's given, you know, it's given you, it's given me, it's given lots of people listening. Um, I remember for me, I, I was always like, I want to own a house in the Alps by the time I'm 30. That seemed to be an important thing. And we started the chalet and we were doing that. And then I remember in my 30th year, we sort of bought the house that we ran the chalet out of. And I remember me and my wife sat on the balcony, like opening a bottle of champagne and looking up, right. looking up at Les Arcs, Le Plan, you know, like it had a crazy, you know, they had the border to Italy up on the Petit Saint Bernard Pass. Les Arcs, Le Plan, you know, surrounded by mountains and just popping this shout and just thinking, you know, how have I gone from, you know, dry slope in Bromley in South East London to kind of achieving what I set out to do. And I think that's one of my favorite memories. It is amazing when you, when you reflect back on, on how you got to that place and, but you didn't do it, you know, didn't happen on its own, did it, Chris? You had to actually work at it and do it. Oh yeah, hundred percent. You know, I've slept yeah. on rat-infested cellars and shit like that to go well, snowboarding then, to make it work. You know, but it's just a decision on your part, isn't it? You decide to do it, but the yeah. the excuse to get you there just happened to be snowboarding, and maybe you would never have even gone to France into the mountains if it wasn't for snowboarding, which no. is probably the truth of it. No, but it, it, there definitely seems to be something about the experience in mountains that draws you in, or it certainly, it felt like the place I needed to be when I went there, I went skiing with the school and it just sort of opened up. We went through the clouds and it opened up and straight away within seconds, I was, I was like, this is for me. Yeah. Have you ever had moments like that where you just feel like you're hundred percent in the right place? Um, no. <laughs> oh man, come on! I'm trying to tee you no. up here. Some amazing story, and you give me no. no but I, I can't. I, I can't. There's, there's so many little stories. Yeah. But I can't think of one particular moment 
that makes me go, oh, wow. Because honestly, I've got so many. Like, right. I've got so many. It's like, I mean, I lived a jet set life for 10 years. Literally, we went all, everywhere to all the resorts. We met all the people. We were at all the parties. We were, we were everywhere we needed to be. And, and, and it does blur into almost normalness. You know, it, it's afterwards that you reflect back and, oh, yeah, that, that was a really good time. But I can't give you a single time. No. <laughs> was, it, was it sat on Hemel Dry Slope? <laughs> I remember I sat with you at Hemel Dry Slope, you know, one of the Hemel Dry Slopes, and they were messy yeah. weekends as well. They were. And just, um, I don't know, watching snowboarding. I mean, you've, you were in the trenches. That's the thing. You say you live this jet set life. You've been in, you know, you've done the time judging dry, every dry slope comp and every event you were there. Do you know what I mean? It's such an incredible amount of work you put into snow. Yeah. It, it did. I did put a hell of a lot of my whole life got sucked into it. I mean, I can go the other way. I can say I can. I do have a particular moment where we're on the snowboard test. Um, one year, we're at, I think it was Intertux, and you know we used to party until very very late. But the next day, the, the you know you had to be up on the lift up the hill with testing snowboards. There's work to be done. But after about four days of not going to bed till five. And getting up again at eight, right? This, it's not you know, without a word of a lie. That's that's what we no, did. No, I know, I know. I lived it. This right. Yeah, and 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 I, I ended up. We got all the snowboards. Uh, I, we had to take them up and down every day, or, or I was, or someone would arrive with some new snowboards, and I'd take them up in the gondola. I ended up in the gondola um, on my own, and I was sat there. There was a first stage. I was in the second stage, and I was really, really hungover, so tired. And I remember going, thinking to myself, "What? What am I doing? I mean, I, I can't do this. This is too hard." And I actually had a little mini breakdown. Even oh no, I looked here, and I went, "I can't do this. I can't do this. What am I doing it for? It's too hard. It's just too hard. Every day I'm coming up here. Who am I? You know, am I earning enough money?" um what's what's the point of this yeah and um well i had my little moment but i remember it quite distinctly yeah i got out of the top and then carried on but it's very hard for me to say to you i've had um a single like defining shit yeah this is this is look what i'm doing because there have been so many. Chris, there are so many things. It, I mean, you, you could, we could talk for an hour on each year, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's so many things I could talk about, like um, dry slope instruction. We set that up from scratch through the dry slope um, instructors. Um, all the individual, but for, for, for years and years, my signatures at the bottom of every single certificate of, of dry slope instruction and then the snow instruction. Yeah. We made a snow instructors course 
ourselves, when I say we, I'm not talking about the BSA, I didn't do it because I can't instruct the shit. I can't be bothered instructing anyone. You know, I would follow the Scottish principle of follow gravity. <laughs> which is coined by Steve Crampton <laughs> and Simon Smith. You want to learn the snowboard? Follow gravity. <laughs> All right? But I saw that we, we had to have an instruction mechanism because the instruction brought people in and that grew the base. And if you grow the base, then everyone will enjoy themselves a lot more in their lives and, and we can have more fun at parties and we can sell more magazines and the competitions will be bigger. You know, it, it's all yeah. this self evolving thing round and round and round. Um, I know that um, Becky said that um, I was surprised at this. She thought that she might think this is true, but it's not true that she, they created their, their very own um, snow, snow uh, qualification. I think what she was saying was that Basie, Basie employed her and Neil to kind of come up with yeah, something well, for them. Do you know what I mean? Well, they might have done, but actually we had a written signed contract with uh, Bob Kinneard of Basie, the British Association of Ski Instructors. Yeah. And off the back of um, the amalgamation of the BSA snow course with Basie, Basie changed their name, that was part of the agreement, to the British Association of Snow Sport Instructors. Wow. Now, um, we were supposed to get a license fee, which we did for two years from Basie right. for that. When I say we again, the BSA. Yeah. But again, that never happened after about two years. Another person you should get on is John O'Grady. Um, he was the chairman of the association for many, many years. I was the yeah. president. Like I yeah. was the I was the figurehead, the flag waver. I was out there talking to all the people. Kissing babies, shaking hands, you know, going snowboarding. With how, many everyone, babies, how many fucking babies did you Well, you know what I mean. You know, I'm out there doing it. Um, I'm, I'm the front, as it were. Um, we almost ran the, the association. So we, we didn't – we had to make decisions and get things done and moving forward. So between three of us, we would make all the decisions on the spot and get them done. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, and and um, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but – that's what we felt we had to do. And, and I felt that owning a magazine and being the president of the association was a very tricky situation because I had to walk a very thin line along a knife edge that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be biased one way or another. Um, I always tried to make it fair for everyone uh, in my role as chairman of the BS, president of the BSA. So how long were you at Snowboard UK for? Like when... I mean, obviously, another two magazines started. Or, or what happened? Did Snowboard UK get sold and then you started? Did you start Document? Yeah. So um, I'll go back a little bit. So the publisher of Windsurf magazine in about 1995 or 96, he bought RAD, Read and Destroy, the skate magazine. Yeah. He bought that magazine. And um, he thought he would be getting the staff along with it. But um, Tim Lane Boyce, who was the editor, but not the owner, he, um, I've subsequently found out, he also made um, a, a um, he tried to buy the magazine as well, but his bid wasn't good enough. So the publisher of Windsurf magazine bought RAD, but didn't have any staff. 
Tim Layton Boyce and, and Mark Kasparovich met, um, got on after about 20 minutes, there was no deal. TLB walked out. So Kasparovich was left with the magazine, but no one to run it. Right. So he then phoned up Stig and I, and he offered us to move to Oxford to work in a really plush barn, um, work in his barn, produce RAD, and produce Snowboard UK. Right. So we all thought, oh my God, you know, it's been skaters, we've been skaters all our life. I've been skating my whole life. Oh my God, I'm going to be the editor of RAD magazine. Of course I'm going to do that. Yeah, of course. So, um, Stig was actually the editor and I was the advertising manager editor. Now, what eventuated, we tried our very, very best to make that magazine to continue it, what the history of what it had been. But the skate um, community is a very close knit community, way, yeah. way, way, way. And it's London focused. And, the, you know, it's, it's basically, it's a London, especially back then. If you weren't in London, you weren't uh, a recognized skateboarder almost, you know. And when TLB got the boot, even though he didn't own the magazine, but he got the boot, everyone thought it was it basically was his magazine. Um, everyone closed ranks. We we couldn't get good imagery from overseas. We we couldn't get advertising because no, we're not gonna advertise in this magazine because we don't believe that the new owner and you guys running it are going to be able to portray skateboarding as it needs to be portrayed and i think there was a lot of truth in that but we we really tried our best because we did have a background in skating but we weren't fully within the scene enough yeah. to be able to portray it as it maybe ought to be done so over a number of months um the magazine went downhill it got thinner uh, we were, we were back then when you did a sequence, you videoed it, did screen grabs. So, but the, so the screen grabs are about, you know, yeah. a, a postage stamp size. So anyway, we did what we could do, but we realized ourselves that we couldn't do this. And at the same time, because advertising got scarcer and scarcer, the deadline and publication date of RAD went back further and further. And it got to the point where we were then trying to make Snowboard UK magazine and RAD magazine in the same two-week period. We were doing two weeks RAD, two weeks Snowboard UK. And we couldn't do it. We physically couldn't do it. Um, so we told Kasparovic that we're going to have to stop. We have to concentrate on our own magazine. But we have a solution for you. We've got um, this Andy and Chris who run a magazine in Nottingham out of um, from um, Nottingham nonstop, wasn't it? Um, called System, System Skate Magazine. Right. They were already producing this magazine. And, well, there might be some different um, stories on this bit, but we introduced Mark to the System Boys and because um, we couldn't do it, but we were trying to find a solution at the same time. Mark said, yep. Yeah, so you're it employed them. So they really knew what they were doing. Um, and they then took on rad, um, and pulled it back in almost instantly within like two issues right. back to what it had been before, because they had the full support of 
the American industry and the UK industry. So it, it worked well yeah. for them. Yeah. But then they realized that Kasparovich was really hard work to work for. He was super hard work and they couldn't get on with him. And um, it was like working for someone that they, it was just hard work to do. Sure. So one day, one day, we found out that Kasparovich, we were still in, in the offices together. Stig and I found out that Kasparovich was now, because he's looking over our shoulder, there's Snowboard, um, RAD Magazine's advertising is going down and down and down. Snowboard UK's advertising figures are going up and up and up. We're getting big. And Kasparovich went, oh, I fancy a bit of snowboarding. I fancy a bit of that pie. So he launched Snowboard World. Oh, of course. Yeah. I'd forgotten about Snowboard World. He launched Snowboard World. And behind our backs, he launched Snowboard World. Remember, the moment we, we found out he was going to do a snowboard magazine, we literally, I wasn't there, Stig packed up our office into the back of his Mercedes estate, the, the trusty fabled estate, put everything into the back of the estate car and pissed off back up to, to Kidderminster. And we, we left that night. We, we just literally up and left. When I say we, the magazine did, but Stig did the moving. Yeah. Um, and then shortly after, Chod then was the um, editor for Snowboard World. Was so he? I didn't know that. Yeah, he was. Yeah, it was Chod and then um, Jim <clears throat> Pesker. Um, he was the advertising manager for um, the, the Windsurf magazine, which was a very good and very big Windsurf magazine. And they had RAD and Snowboard World. So now um, Arkwind Publishing had the biggest um, surf magazine, uh, windsurf magazine, sorry, in the UK. They now had the fabled skateboard magazine of the UK run by some real good editors, and they just launched a snowboard magazine. Right. So things looking pretty rosy, right? And we're pissed off. We're up in back up in Kidderminster. But... It became evident very quickly that no one could work for the publisher of Arkwind. So overnight, there was a coup and they left. All of them left. Jim Pesco had been working with um, Arkwind for years and years. It's a really good advertising buyer. Yeah. They all got on really well. They up and left, said F you to Kasparovich, and they left and set up White Lines, and sidewalk surfer yeah so that's where those two magazines came from right, those magazines came from from there because snowboard uk put the spark in the idea of casper so he could start a magazine yeah so you could say that we were also a, a, a contributory large contributory factor in every single magazine in the uk ever taken existence how did it feel when some other magazines pop up? Like, do you think, oh, oh shit, like we've got competition now? Or was it all fair yeah, game? Yeah, like, it, it, it was like, oh, how dare they? Don't, how dare they? What, what are they doing? Are we doing something wrong? Why would somebody want to do something different to us or better than us? And, you know, it was like, there was a lot of pride at stake. Oh, no, we, that's not as good as ours. Ours is much better than theirs. Um, but White Lines was really good. You know, yeah. and, and they had a different way of doing things, different way of, of looking at things. But um, what I would say is that they still had the same, hu they still had the humour. Yeah. yeah, they did. And, that, and yeah. that was one of the glorious things about the whole thing. Yeah, it, it did, yeah. 
And, and I think between them, when White Lines and Snowboard UK, there there was two magazines on the scene. So yeah. So when when did you finish at Snowboard UK? Um. So then, um, I, I bought I bought Stig out of the magazine. So is that because he'd sort of he'd done his time? Oh, pretty much. But I wanted to move in a different direction, and and I was getting frustrated. Um, I wanted to do stuff myself, and I wanted to do another magazine, and I wanted to do different things. And, and Stig didn't really want to do it like that. So, well, I ended up trying to buy him out, but the agreement didn't happen in the end because Air Publications, which is the name of the publishing company, it went bust. Right. And um, I moved into an office in, in Worcester. We had Snowboard UK with the Snowboard Bible, which is almost a standalone magazine. Mm. We, we were running, um, we were co-publishing Dig BMX magazine. Yeah. Um, we actually owned 50% of that um, with Will Smythe. Um, we had a skateboard magazine, so I've completely forgotten the name of it. Oh my god! We we dabbled in a cross sports magazine with um, Phil Young called Ergo Sun. Right. We published the World Snowboard Guide for Tony Brown. I contributed to that. I think there you go. We, we did all that. And we're doing that. Um, and then I wanted to start um, a, a downhill bike magazine. Oh, that's right. And I started the skate magazine after Stig had left. And at the same time, we had like, um, I suppose, a a dodgy accountant who wasn't actually an accountant. (laughs) And um, it's a long story, but one day he turned up in our air publications offices with, um, he opened his briefcase to show us his um, Masonic regalia, which he liked to carry around. Right. And sitting on sitting on top of his Masonic regalia was a Glock, as in handgun. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> "I said the Masons were tasty with firearms." Well, I said, Keith, Keith. two questions: <laughs> one, why do you have a Glock in your briefcase? And two, what the hell didn't use that word? Is it doing in my office? Yeah, you're fired go and there's already some it, it, uh, uh, understand that it, it, the, the accounts reflected what i wanted to see rather than what was actually going on right anyway this is all going on then um stick and i split um i moved into an, a separate office in worcester town um vicky we had a little kid uh, with with vicky um and the accounts, we, I, I launched two new magazines, Grip Downhill Bike Magazine, and I headhunted the editor of, um, of Dirt to come and work for me. Yeah. So he was there. Um, Dave Garland came to, to work as the technical editor. We had Percy running the Skateboard Magazine, which I can't remember the name of. can't believe it. We had now had a staff of 14 people. Wow. We had um, like basically four slash five magazines, um, 23 contributors, 
and it was a yeah, it was a proper thing going on. Yeah, that's a juggernaut. And yeah, we and in Worcester it was fantastic. We had we we had a BMX scene, we had a skateboard scene, we had a snowboard scene, we had a downhill bike magazine. All these people would all come to the magazine, come to the offices, and we did all these different like types of people. They're all the same, but they're yeah. different. Yeah, and. One day, the the accounts they weren't something was wrong, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And the difficult thing was in, in a snowboard the snowboard um, magazine. the The year, you know, one year, is twelve months, but the advertising year from the time the final revenues come in to when you actually ask for it could be eighteen months. So we had this blur of of some income was from the year before compared to the year we were in yeah. and that was on an ongoing cycle this 18 month um 20 month cycle sometimes so we're never quite sure what the money situation was and um i got rid of this accountant with the glock and um did you find new... out why he had a glock in his suitcase no i did say oh, i've just got a few people after me at the moment that's what he said <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> amazing and, and i can see there's all these stories that you're talking about i mean like, <laughs> they go on and on um the i employed panel Kerr foster a big a, a big in, you know they're a big accountant um in worcester well all over the country i suppose they're still going um well one of the big six type accountants um after six to eight months we, we were into the, the new magazines um Phone call from panel Claire Foster. Eddie, um, can you come and see us? We, we've finally got to the bottom of everything. I went, oh, great. So I went in there and they sat me down and they said, you're in liquidation. Um, we finally realised where you're at. And you're £250,000 in the red. Why? Yeah. So things just didn't work out. I mean, we, we tried to go into all you know, the, the printers were suffering, the repro people were suffering, but we had to close the doors. Yeah. And, um, the thing that upset me most of all, um, was we lost all the people. We lost the scene of what we were doing, um, in Worcester. It was yeah. a real focal point and all that energy, just dissipated away and just they, people had to go and earn a living, you know? Yeah. We had to shut everything down. Um, people didn't get paid. Um, the employees, you no, know, it's like Brandy, um, Simon, uh, Wendy, Viv Jenkins, Wendy Lumby, Viv Jenkins, um, Simon, the designer, um, uh, Mark Rothwell, half of them came and lived with us. Ian Sampson. So there's so many, um, but four or five of them came and lived with, with us in our house in Worcester right. for a few months. We were trying to get the thing going again. Um, and I, I came up with a plan over 10 years to revitalize, to pay back all the debts. Yeah. But the accountant said, Eddie, you can't do it. You, you can't do what you're trying to do. You're doing, I'm trying to do the right thing, but you can't do it. Yeah. You just have to close up and go bankrupt. And that's what we had to do. Well, that, that was that was the end of Air Publications. And as that was all happening, I even had meatheads coming into the offices on Trinity Street in Worcester, um, and they were going to beat me up. Yeah. They were going to beat me up to pay up. Yeah. 
of one of the um, larger companies. But they were owed about £20,000. It was a lot of money. But anyway, we got them out of the office and then phoned the police and chased them around town in the cars trying to look for them. Anyway, <laughs> another story. And then Snowboard UK was bought by um, Free. I should remember this. They were based down in Bournemouth, weren't they? Yeah, they were Bournemouth way. Yeah, so I I would then go down there. Um, Ian and I were the editors, and before where we had, we all had our own desk and lots of space. Ian and I were sharing a desk, probably the same size as one you're sitting at now. <laughs> he was at one end, I was at the other, and we were trying to pull together seven issues of Snowboard UK with yeah. no resources, nothing, and. Um, but that I kept coming to a head. We would be late on deadlines because we just couldn't pull it together because we didn't have the resources. Uh, a, a guy also called Mark. He kept pulling me up, saying, "Hey, if you if you keep missing the deadlines, um, you'll be fired." So um, I was in London at a shop, um, the 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 grand the boardwise shop um, with Phil, the owner. Um, doing some advertising sales with him yeah. and got a phone call from, from Vicky, my wife at the time. She'd been called in the hospital um, because she had an ectopic pregnancy and um, which is, you know, the egg gets stuck in the fallopian tubes and yeah. it was, it was twins apparently. And um, we, we, so she'd been rushed into the, the hospital. So I had to rush back up to, um, to Worcester. We were still yeah. living there um to deal with all that obviously and that happened on deadline how dare it happen on deadline so we oh. missed deadline again and because of that he fired me what an absolute prick yeah he <laughs> was a prick um so i took him to court you know yeah. and i won i got a little bit of compensation didn't really matter just wanted to win yeah and out of that when when it when i found out when we found out that i got fired um, sort of a similar situation to the, the earlier RAD episode occurred where everyone just pulled their advertising, didn't want to work with Snowboard UK because I then got in touch with, we were really good friends with Fourline and the, the Kiwis for Fourline Ski Magazine. Yeah. And I got in touch with them and we decided on, over a phone call and um, on the spot to launch, to create Document Snowboard Magazine. Yeah. So we created Document Snowboard Magazine uh, I went to ISPO, that, that happened just before ISPO, walked around ISPO, walked out of there with like 60 pages of advertising. Wow. Um, all booked at ISPO. And we launched Document Snowboard. No way. And we, that's with, with, with Jason Horton, Natalie Meyer, and, 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 and Andy and, and everyone else from Fourline. So we had a new organization to create this magazine. And then off the back of that, um, there was document and was oh, and Ian of course Ian was involved in that as well Ian Samson yeah, yeah. Um, document snowboard and then shortly after we'd launched document skateboard magazine yeah that's right Percy yeah. was doing that wasn't he that with Percy yeah um, well that, that's sort of and then I carried that on for that was 2000 and by 2002 um I'd already moved to New Zealand. We were un- we thought we could do um, 
I could continue doing my work from New Zealand. I was actually, right. I flew back five times the first year. Wow. Four times the next year. Um, so I moved over here in 2002. But that whole saying, out of sight, out of mind, because I wasn't there on the spot. Yeah. I slowly got pushed out, pushed out, just sidelines, because I wasn't there. And I came, came to a point where I just basically stopped. So, so where are you now then? Like, you're obviously in New Zealand. What, what fills your days? When I got to New Zealand, I actually then, the very first year, I was responsible for pulling together the international, the ISF World Junior Snowboard Championships for that oh, year. Okay. Yeah, so I pulled all that together and ran that. Um, that was the year that the ISF collapsed because Fizz basically went in and yeah, fucked them over. It's funny, I was listening to, um, I don't know if you listened to the bomb hole. American no. snowboarding podcast. It's good. They had um, Donna Burton Carpenter, if that's, I don't know if yeah. she gets the Burton bit in her name, but they had her on. And she's still pretty angry about sort of FIS and the ISF. Yeah. And I, and it's sort of, I thought maybe everyone was over that because, you know, sort of FIS are just running things now. But is there still sort of like lingering? Like for you, is there, you know, the sort of ski, skiers taking control of snowboarding? that's still is that still a wound it yeah it it annoys me greatly but i am not a competitive snowboarder um i am an idealistic type thought process that it needs to be run by snowboarders for snowboarders and a ski company a ski skiers coming in is just going to ruin what snowboarding was and i still feel the same as that now i don't think snowboarding should be in the olympics um, it never should have been. The Olympics need snowboarding more than the snowboarding needs the Olympics. All those, you know, all those things you hear, yeah. I still think it's true. Um, it's immaterial now. It's done and dusted, and there's a whole new level of snowboarder. Without, they don't care. They just want to do the. They just want to go snowboard and do the best they can do. Yeah. But the fact is, it could have happened within a snowboarder controlled environment and they would still be doing the best that they could do. Yeah. But it, well, it, it just didn't happen. Um, the ISF went bust, um, trying to do too much too young. You know, it, it was a 10 year old organization and it needed to be a 30, 40 year old organization. So, but I'm not, I'm not angry about it. I mean, I'm still, annoys me a little bit i mean uh, what what is snowboarding become at the olympics is it is it just the, the, the gymnast thing what, what is it you know what excite well uh, yeah on that then so when you're watching i think it's fair to say that most of the time that you see certainly in this country if you see snowboarding now it's it's some sort of competition and it you know yeah. that's the basis of it you don't see much looking at the lifestyle element of it which is probably the thing that is the most fun about it you know like competition has now got to such a high standard that i you know i wonder the kids watching it now look at it and think that's a sport i want to do or whether it's just like um freestyle skiing where they do four flips and whatever and it's it's a trampoline well, almost like a trampoline basically i wonder if it's still inspiring so i wonder how that looks to you um I like watching massive big air, just a full-on massive floater method, right? I'd rather yeah. watch that 
that you know first hit of a pipe yeah than a super spinny whatever right um where i live here in monaco this is the center of snow sports in new zealand yeah. um snow sports new zealand is here um i ran the new zealand snowboard association for six months as well and i was involved with snow sports new zealand for a long time as the, the, the team convener so I, I know how it all works um and the 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 work that goes on here it pumps out some really good athletes because they're athletes now they're not riders they're athletes um and it pushes them out into what is accepted as the norm i mean i don't know it, it it's it's a very difficult question to go along because we have to talk about um money for medals the only way governments will fund sport is if they get medals medals at where medals at the olympics yeah um government um and and then national um sporting bodies to get their funding they have to produce results yeah um getting a win at the burton open which to you and me and to the snowboards oh wow you know what's his name tony smith won burton burton open whatever is the hot um, competition now because all the different competitions have all sort of died off as well um it's all gone we're on a four-year cycle everyone needs to know what they're doing four years out the change and um upgrading of 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 competitions to reflect what's current in the sport seems to have gone or it's very hard to change like what red bull are doing seems to be um a, a great way of of trying to do that but red bull is still a tear down from the olympics whereas really the, those all those red bull competitions they're what snowboarding is mm. but then then maybe the public sees it differently now but i sort of stay out of it a little bit because yeah. my view is nuanced and it's old school i don't think it's current i don't think it's relevant particularly um so okay that's interesting that you can actually reflect on that on your sort of position on it mm. i think that's quite interesting so what's doing it for snow what's doing it in snowboarding i mean you just it's the start of summer down there for you um, do you get all frothy come the autumn and think, oh man, like are you still going riding or are you have you traded in for skis? What's I, happening? I've never skied in my life. No, I've never skied. No, <laughs> I've, 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 this year is the first year I haven't been snowboarding. Um, what? Why not? Yeah, be, because I went to Europe this year and I got back in middle of September, which is nearly the end of our season, and it was yeah. really hot and. I couldn't be bothered going for a number of reasons. Now, I've been, there's, there's two resources. It's Cadrona and Troublecone. I've been going to them for 24 years. I literally know every turn, every move, like the back of my hand, and yeah. I'm sort of bored. I'm right. bored of it. I'm bored of going to those places. Added to that, um, um, the, the resorts get so full, Cadrona has to shut the, the gates at the bottom because there's 5,000 people up there. You have to drive up the hill. They changed the rules such that um, they they dumb down drivers. So even if you've got snow tires and cha- uh, snow tires and four wheel drive, oh sorry sir, 
you've got to put your snow chains on. I don't need snow chains. I've got a four-wheel drive with snow tires on. Oh, well, then you can't come up. And, right. and then when you get up there, you've got to walk a mile. Um, I, I've just got sort of sick of snowboarding here in New Zealand. And I could right. travel to some of the other resorts, but I sort of haven't. No. So I'm a little bit bored of snowboarding, I would say. I would love to do a season in Europe. When I say a season, I'd love to do two weeks in Team Val I love it. I would so love to do it. Can organise that. But it's that. expensive. You know, I've got to, got to go over there. And it's, yeah. It's such a, maybe I will soon. But So this is the first year in 30-what years yeah. that I haven't been snowboarding. Um. When I was, uh, in previous years, I, I've gone from, you know, 20 days a year, 10 days a year. I've gone down to five days a year, stop buying the season pass, just get a three-day pass. And um, I've, I've slowed down bit by bit, but I yeah. haven't stopped, okay? What I do now is uh, I do a lot of mountain biking, yeah. a lot. Right. So I, I race downhill, enduro, you know, just events as I can do. Done five events this year. Um, I run. I do a lot of swimming, which seems crazy. You know, go from snowboarding and skateboarding. Um, is that, is race, that some, um, is that some sort of cold water swimming thing, or? Oh no! I, I, it, I just got into triathlon. I got into triathlon. Done quite a few triathlons. Done you know Ironman and, and half uh, half Ironman, and. Um, I've started, I've got my own swim event with my friend, Jamie. It's called the Ruby swim yeah. and it, it swims around an Island here in Lake Wanaka. And we've got um, six swim lengths, like 600 meters, 1.2 K, 2.5 K, 3.8 K, 5 K and 10 K swims. And we have 500 people come along. It's quite a big deal. So, so I'm still running events. <laughs> I know. Still, still got your clipboard. I know. Honestly, <laughs> after every single ruby, it, it happens at the uh, end of January, which is our middle of, of summer. Yeah. After the ruby's over, I say to Jamie, right, fuck that. I'm not doing this again. That was too hard. I'm not doing that again. And I've been doing it for 10 years now. So still doing it. And then from that, I've, I've got uh, my own, I've made a wetsuit brand. So oh, I make right. wetsuits. Yeah. So I've, I've, um, designed a f- wetsuit for fresh water yeah and they're called, they're called ruby fresh ruby island fresh water just call them ruby fresh wetsuits so um i've made two batches of two two production runs i'm on my third production run at the moment at the factory 600 wetsuits i'm making and i'm hoping to launch into um the uk this coming summer nice so if, you, uh, if you have to come over to help with that along, you'll have to come and visit. Yeah, well, I will do. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I've realised that I've taken you for quite a long time. Um, oh, no, I don't mind. I mean, we're never going to get me in an hour. We need no, no. Well, there's probably... Maybe we have to do a repeat one. Uh, can you... If you had to sort of sum up snowboarding and what it means to you you do that? Uh, it, it's hard. Um, I have always felt very lucky and honoured to happen to have been in the right place at the right time. 
to um have been able to experience all the friends and situations and that i've made and done um i you know i i really feel really 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 lucky to have been at the to have been at the start of snowboarding at the just at the right place but also to have been well one of the um creators of, of snowboarding for the uk you know yeah yeah, yeah. I, do, I do understand I, I i did have that role of i suppose i've got a, a strongish personality and, and i just got things done the best way i could think of so i have in i have enjoyed that um but there's little things like i mean if it wasn't for snowboarding i wouldn't have met the wife at the time and i wouldn't have had my kids and i wouldn't be living in new zealand so those are really important to me. So, you know, there's all of that. And if you could say, for instance, you were talking to someone, well, you're talking to me, someone like me who maybe has, it's dropped down the list of priorities, but is now trying to move it back up their list of priorities. How would you motivate someone who misses it and needs to get, and sort of wants to get back into it? Oh, yeah, I would, um, well, I, I could talk about myself. You know, if you've lost your mojo a bit, maybe you just need to try a bit harder and just go and carve some turns, you know, just. I, I think a change of environment would fix me. But currently, I can't see a change of environment. Um, how would I get someone else to go? Um, I don't know, Chris. There's so much to do now. You know, it's snowboarding back then was the next big thing. It was it was the thing. If you were on on the end, you wanted to do something that was the skateboarding. When skateboarding came around, I was right there. I had to go skateboarding because it was it was the, everyone's talking about it. You know, nineteen seventy five onwards. And then when snowboarding came around, as an early adopter, I had to go snowboarding. So. People just need to go and experience the snowboard, see where it takes them, literally um, around the world or within themselves, and just enjoy it for what it is. So there we are. <clears throat> An hour and a half in the company of a man that is Eddie Spearing. As I said before, a man that's just been so influential in a small scene. Um, from driving around shops to sell advertising in the magazine to deliver magazines. I think that's quite a unique position for... Because in America, it would be too big to do that. You can't see uh, the editors of Transworld Snowball magazine driving around to shops to deliver their magazines and to chat to them and to find out what was important to them. And I guess that is probably still true for a lot of countries. Whereas in the British scene, that's kind of the country is small enough in a sense to make that happen. And that is what I feel built such a cohesive scene. Um, in Stuart Duncan's episode, he mentioned about Jeremy Sladen, uh, the main guy at the snowboard asylum dry. I think he worked for Sims at the time, driving round to shops and to sell boards, you know, like it was the time on the road and it was the time face to face with people that I think was really important and that helped create such a cohesive scene where kind of it, everyone came together because 
because of these commonalities. And uh, I don't know that that's necessarily true in every other in every other country. I guess it's the amount of shops that there were and the amount of dry slopes that encourage people to do it. And as Eddie said, you know, encouraging making a structure for people to learn. Um, you know, it's not just people finding it on their own and, you know, maybe becoming pro riders and all that sort of stuff. It's It's the people on the ground that became instructors and encouraged other people into the sport that I think really made it what it was. And that's maybe a side of things that is often overlooked. And uh, yeah, so shout out to everyone who has got one of those hand-signed BSA dry slope instructor certificates with Eddie's, Eddie's signature on it. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. It was a bit of a long one. We went over time. Um, as we talked about at the end, we could have we could have gone so many more places. So maybe there's a revisit if time if time allows. I think we'll probably get Eddie back on. Maybe if he comes over here, if he comes to visit the UK at any point. And obviously, we also talked about a kind of old shred dogs kind of trip somewhere. And uh, I know that a few people are heading out to the Dragon Lodge in Teen. Shout out to the Dragon Lodge. There's also the TSA Shred Weeks. All these things are good to get involved in or go and visit. Go and visit. um, Go and spend time at holiday companies that are run by snowboarders for snowboarders. I can say that from experience, having run a snowboarding holiday company myself. Um, it really does make a difference. If you want to know more about the snowboard scene and you want to get into it, then you're going to find no more supportive an environment than uh, staying somewhere that is run by snowboarders for snowboarders because they're going to know what you need. They're going to know what your day looks like. They're going to know all the little bits that are going to make your experience a bit better <clears throat> and uh, not favouring anyone over anyone else. But uh, there are some people out there doing a good job and so go and find out about them. So what else? I've just chucked some more videos up on our YouTube channel. Thank you, Snowboarding. Um, some of the lockdown projects videos are up there. Um, I didn't ask Tim and Gend, but I'm sure it's fine. Um, so they're up there. Uh, the video, the song at the start of the episode this week is the Cadillac Tramps uh, Don't Go, which is from the um, Full Line Full Line Films video, Riders on the Storm. And that is now on the Shredflix playlist on the uh, YouTube channel as well. So you can go and check that out. Uh, The Instagram keeps growing. People are taking an interest in that. Um, Stuart Brass has just followed us. Big shout out to you, Stuart. And uh, we posted a picture up on Christmas Day of Adrian Corrigal wearing the exact same outfit that he was wearing on issue one of Snowboard UK, which was a really fun thing. I went to Adrian's house a couple of weeks ago. He said he'd found a load of stuff at his mum's house as he was moving her out, and uh, he had the same outfit. So we got him dressed up in that, and I posted a picture on our Instagram. So if you want to find that, go and head to thank you at Thank You Snowboarding Podcast on... On Instagram, um, the music at the top of the show this week is the Cadillac Tramps song called Don't Go, and that is from the movie Riders on the Storm by Four Line Films. Uh, a brilliant film, and that song comes from the section where I think Terrier and Todd Richards and Jay Nelson possibly head to head to Chile 
for a bit of summer snowboarding, except that it's winter down there. And um, yeah, it's just a really good section that will make you definitely want to go snowboarding. So go and check that out. Uh, that's at the top of the Shredflix playlist on our YouTube channel. Also on our YouTube channel, I've just put up some of the lockdown project movies. Um, proper Terminal Ferocity, Badass Big Airs and Show Offs. That's to kind of follow on from the invasion and the sequel, which we posted a couple of, well, a few weeks ago now. Um, I kind of see all those movies as a sort of lineage. They definitely lead from one to the other and um, ending in Terminal Ferocity, which was a kind of fake documentary behind the scenes thing of one of their movies. So it was kind of taking the piss out of themselves, really. And I really think it was Tim and Gen's sort of finest work. I know they've gone on to do other things, which I'm sure is great. But um, in terms of their sort of snowboarding work, I would say that Terminal Ferocity really did it for me. It had the humour that me and Eddie talked about that seemed to run through British snowboarding. They're not taking it too seriously. And, you know, just being able to take the piss out of yourself, which I think is probably healthy in most situations. So yeah, that's all up on our YouTube channel now. There's sort of we're just trying to put stuff up there as we find it most of the time. If you've got anything that you want to suggest to us, then please do get in touch via email. It's thankyousnowboarding at gmail.com. If you've got anything you want to share with the community, any stories, any photos that you want us to put up on the Instagram, then um, please do. Please do. We're a sort of an open forum for your input. And um, as probably a British snowboarder, you are part of this too. So we, I'd personally love to hear your stories and people have been messaging in and talking about their experiences and I love it. And if you want something read out on here, then yeah, just send me an email. Thank you, snowboarding at gmail.com. Be great to hear from you. Uh, anything else to talk about? Not really. Uh, if you wanna, if you are enjoying this podcast, please do find a way to um, give us a like, subscribe, all that business, five star reviews, leave a comment, leave a review. Certainly you can do it on Apple Podcasts. I don't know about Spotify, but um, yeah, if you could do that, it's much appreciated. Obviously, if we get more reviews, it gets spread around wider. Obviously, if you've got snowboarding friends you think might be interested, please share it with them. Please share it around on socials. It all helps when it comes to uh, the longevity and the breadth of people we can cover. Obviously, the more listeners, then the longer the run of this podcast can carry on. So, yeah, please do. And, yeah, just left for me to say a happy new year. I hope the start of 24 treats you well. Um, we will be back next Thursday when we all know what day of the week it is again. Very much look forward to that. And, yeah, for now, thank you, snowboarding. Peace out. <laughs>